guys can turn to Philippians chapter 4. That's where we'll be this morning as we continue our series on mental health. I was here a few weeks ago. If you missed it, we started with finding hope in the midst of loneliness. Then I shared my own story, finding hope in the midst of depression. Today we'll talk about finding hope in the midst of anxiety, and next week we'll talk about finding hope in the midst of addiction. So that's kind of the scope of our series. The previous talks are all online, and talks will continue to go up on Tuesdays after the Sunday that they're preached. So this morning we're going to talk about how to find hope in the midst of fear and anxiety, and some of you struggle with fear. You struggle with anxiety on a regular basis. And so you are locked in right now. Like you have your pad out and your pen, you're taking notes. You want to know how to find hope in the midst of anxiety. But for some of you, this is not your thing. You don't really wrestle with worry. And so you might be tempted to tune out this message. I I don't want you to do that. So I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to give you some things to worry about so that you can be like the rest of us. So here's just some things that maybe you weren't aware of that are going on in our world today. We'll start with the doomsday clock. Scientists have been keeping the doomsday clock since 1947. It's controlled by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. It's not a real clock. It's metaphorical. It's designed to indicate how close they believe we are to a global catastrophe and in particular to nuclear war. And so the closer it's set to midnight, that means the closer these scientists believe we are to Armageddon, the closest it's ever been is two minutes till midnight. It was set then to two minutes till midnight twice, once in 1953 when we and the Russians began testing hydrogen bombs, and this year. So they believe we're as close to nuclear Armageddon as we've ever been. Uh, Second thing to worry about, your chance of getting hacked. Actually, now security experts are saying that you should assume your chance of being hacked is actually 100%. That at some point, your email or Facebook or Instagram will be hacked. And unless you're a political party or a celebrity, that's not a big deal. Just kind of an inconvenience. Far worse is that at some point, your financial data may be hacked. And you may have missed this, but in the fall, the biggest and most worrisome hack of financial data ever happened. The credit rating bureau Equifax was hacked and hackers had access to very sensitive financial data, including social security numbers and driver's licenses for 140,000. 3 million Americans. We are still not sure what the full damage will be of that hack, and that was just one of hundreds of major businesses hacked this last year. Um, Now, a little closer to home, maybe in your pocket, your cell phone. Scientists at the University of Arizona have concluded that cell phones carry 10 times more bacteria than the average toilet seat. And here in America, 16% of all cell phones have human fecal matter on them. So... Since discovering that statistic, I have been regularly wiping my phone down with alcohol pads. I welcome you to do the same. We live in really anxious times. There's so much to worry about in this world that we live in. And so for many people, they need to know how can you find hope in the midst of anxiety and fear. Well, this morning I'm going to share with you my wife Julie's story. So last time I was here, I shared my story of dealing with clinical depression. Today I'm going to share her story of dealing with an anxiety disorder. And so, yes, we are a fine pair. We do often joke about whether my depression caused her anxiety or vice versa. It is challenging with both of us having our own mental health issues. There's also, though, grace in it. 
Because the fact that both of us struggle with our mental health means that we have an uncommon amount of compassion and mercy upon one another because we understand what the other person is dealing with. And when you look at something like anxiety, you, you realize that um, for me, for someone who doesn't deal with that, you've you got to be humbled at some point in life to fully understand what a person is dealing with when they battle an anxiety disorder. I think in my younger days, I really could not have appreciated it. Until I dealt with my own battle with depression, I don't think I could have wrapped my mind around what it's like. In fact, when I was young, to be honest, I kind of looked down upon people who struggled with worry, who struggled with anxiety. Because remember what Jesus says in Matthew 6, do not be afraid. Okay, simple as that. Do not worry. I thought it was as simple as that. In my life, generally speaking, I was able to do that. I might be a little afraid in front of a test or something like that. But generally speaking, anxiety was not my thing. And so I would look down on people who dealt with that. I'd be like, come on, just grow up. Just be more mature. Just trust in Jesus more. Stop worrying. My advice to someone dealing with anxiety was not too dissimilar to Bob Newhart's advice in this very famous sketch, which you may or may not be aware of. Tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, Well... I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. (laughs) I just, I start thinking about being buried alive and I begin to panic. Has, has, has anyone ever, ever tried to, to bury you alive in a box? No, no, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. So what what you're saying is you're uh, you're claustrophobic. Uh, Yes. Yes, that's it. All right. Well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in into your life. Shall I uh, write them down? Well, if, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most We find most people can, uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay, you're there. Stop it! <sighs> what's, what's the problem, Kathy? I don't like this. I don't like this therapy at all. You're just telling me to stop it. And, and, you, and you, don't, you don't like that? No, I don't. So you think we're, we're moving too fast, is that it? Yes. Yes, I do. All right, then let me, uh, let me uh, give you ten words that I, I think will uh, clear everything up for you. Uh, you want to you get a pad and a pencil for this one? All right. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. All right, here are the ten words. Stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box. (laughs) Now, hopefully we would be more gracious than Bob. And yet, our advice is much the same. When we tell a person who's struggling with anxiety, hey, just stop worrying and trust Jesus more. What I have learned in watching my wife go through her battle with anxiety and seeing my own battle with depression is this rule. Sometimes anxiety is not a choice and stop it is bad advice. Let me say that again. 
There are times when anxiety is not a choice and telling someone to just stop it is bad advice. So what I want to do this morning is give you better advice. I want to help you to know how you can find hope in the midst of your battle with anxiety or how you can help someone you love who's battling anxiety. What, what advice, what encouragement, what comfort can you give to them? Now, to be able to, to walk through this practical advice, first we have to get a sense of what we're talking about. What is anxiety and how does anxiety work? Well, all of us know what anxiety feels like. All of us will struggle at times with anxiety and fear. And actually, if you think about it, that's a good thing. Fear in doses is a gift that God has given you. Think about it. If, if it's nighttime and you are walking alone through a dark parking lot, you will feel fear. And that's good. Why? Because that sense of fear shoots you with adrenaline. And, and your, your senses are awakened, and your muscles are tensed, and you are ready either to fight or to flee. That's a good thing that God has designed in your body. So anxiety is good in small doses for specific situations. But when it is prolonged, then it grows into something negative. It becomes something that is damaging to you when that anxiety is prolonged or continues over a long period of time. This is actually incredibly common. Researchers found this last year, 53% of college students described feeling more than average or tremendous stress within the past 12 months. And if there's ever been a time in your life when you would say, I felt tremendous stress, that is an unhelpful level of anxiety. Now it's beyond what God designed it to be. Now it's grown into something that's beginning to affect your quality of life. And if it's left untreated, that tremendous anxiety can grow into an anxiety disorder. And that's really what we're focusing on this morning. Now what is an anxiety disorder? It's a very broad term, but here's how doctors define it. An anxiety disorder is a group of mental disorders characterized by significant Significant, prolonged feelings of anxiety and fear. Okay, so again, it's okay to feel fear and anxiety for short duration about a specific threat. But if it's prolonged and excessive, then it can become a full-blown anxiety disorder. And there's quite a few different varieties of anxiety disorders out there. Here's some of the most common, certainly not an exhaustive list. There's generalized anxiety disorder. That's the most broad. There's social anxiety disorder. There's phobias such as agoraphobia. You're afraid to leave your house. Um, There's separation anxiety. There's panic disorders, which have a a very significant biological effect upon you. There are an incredible number of anxiety disorders out there, and there's an incredible number of people suffering from them today. So here's some statistics for you from the Anxiety and Phobia Workbook published in 2010. So actually the numbers are higher today. These are a little bit old, but they'll give you a baseline for it. Anxiety disorders today in America are the number one mental health problem for U.S. women. Number one mental health problem. For men, it's second only actually to alcohol and suicide risk. It's incredibly common. 17% of the U.S. population, that's 50 million people, will suffer each year from an anxiety disorder. So that's at any given time. And you add all that up, that means a quarter of U.S. adults will suffer an anxiety disorder during their lifetime. A quarter. 
That means there's a really high percentage chance that either you, your spouse, or someone you love will suffer an anxiety disorder at some point in life. So very high numbers, and here's the concerning part, those numbers are growing. That's actually been proven in our society that the percentage of people dealing with anxiety disorders is growing. And, and so why is that happening? Well, the workbook continues. It says people living in Western society are currently experiencing more stress than they have at any previous time in history. And it is this stress that explains the increased incidence of anxiety disorders. What scientists are finding is that the generalized anxiety level in the world, and particularly in Western society, is higher right now than it has ever been in the history of the human race. Why is that? Well, if you think about it, it's because the pace of change in society is accelerating. Changes are coming faster to the human race than they ever have before. And so let me address uh, something I've seen in society in this last year that's a little bit troubling. I've noticed folks from from my generation and older sometimes talking about younger generations like high schoolers or college students as snowflakes and what we mean by that is is we think they're weak they're brittle they're not strong well first of all that's not a christian thing to say that's unkind but second of all it's actually verifiably false we can prove that the the ground beneath our collective feet is moving faster than it ever has before The pace of societal change is accelerating. What that means is that younger generations are growing up without the societal stability that many of us took for granted when we were their age. And so they can't help but deal with anxiety disorders. Of course they are. Not because they are weaker, but because their world is harder than ours was. Because it's changing so fast. And so anxiety disorders are very, very common, 25%. That number is going up rapidly. It's an incredibly common thing in our world. And so we need to know how do you find hope in the midst of that battle with anxiety and an anxiety disorder? Well, it's not just by telling someone to stop it. It doesn't work that way. What I'm going to do is give you a list of steps, five steps, for finding hope in the midst of your battle with anxiety. But I do want to be clear, this is not an exhaustive list. I I can't cover everything that needs to be covered about the topic of anxiety in one sermon. Also, I am not an expert. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a a psychologist. I'm not a doctor. I'm just a pastor. And so I can give you a lot of biblical advice, but the list I'm going to give you is not exhaustive. It's meant to be a starting place for you. To, to give you a good beginning, but you're going to need to talk to an expert, a, a Christian counselor, a psychologist, a doctor to help you figure out what all you need to do. Okay, so I'm going to walk you through this, these first five steps, get you started. So step number one, how do you find hope in the midst of a battle with an anxiety disorder? Well, step number one, you got to talk about it. Probably shouldn't be a surprise. It's step one of all my sermons. You, you got to talk about it. You got to talk to God about it. You got to talk to other people about it. You got to talk to experts about it. We see that consistently through scripture. All of the heroes of the Bible were open and honest about their struggles, whatever those struggles were. You look at David, you look at Solomon, you look at Elijah, you look at Jeremiah, you look at Paul, you look at Jesus. These guys were honest and open and, and vulnerable about their struggles with fear and discouragement and anxiety and loneliness. They did not try to hide those struggles out of a sense of pride or embarrassment. 
If you try to hide your struggle with, with anxiety or depression, whatever it is, if you try to hide it, it will own you. Struggles always get worse when they're left in the dark. They will eventually consume you. The only way to find hope and healing is to bring it out into the light. You must be open and honest. First with God. Now you're not going to shock God. You're not going to overwhelm God. He's God. You need to pour out your, your worries and your anxieties to him regularly on a daily basis. We're actually told in 1 Peter 5. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. God actually wants you to pour out your anxiety, your worries, your needs at his feet. He wants you to do that all the time. Why? Because that is a demonstration of humility. It's pride when we hold those things back. When we suppress them, it's humility when we lay them out before God and declare our dependence upon him. So talk about your struggles with God. Second, talk about your struggles with one another. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to talk about your struggles with everyone, but you need to talk about your struggles with someone. I I tend to encourage people, you ought to have three friends in your life who are safe and you are open and honest with one another. The three friends in your life who you can tell them anything, and you do. You actually talk to them about what you're struggling with, what you need, and they encourage you, and they pray for you, and they help you. Why do you need that? We've talked about this some, but I just want to make sure that, that you're beginning to, to make this kind of, kind of change the corner, change the direction of how you think about what you are. Human beings were designed by God to be communal creatures. What does that mean? When a human being is isolated and alone, what does God say about that? Genesis chapter 2. That is not good. For you to be isolated and alone, the creator of the universe, the creator of you, says that is not good because that's not what I made. He did not make individual isolated humans. He made a community, a family. That is what you are. You are part of a community. That is the only way to thrive as a human being is in community. You will fall if you try to do life alone. You must have others you can lean on and who can lean on you. God designed it that way. That's the only way humans can thrive. So you must be open and honest and vulnerable with others. It doesn't have to be everybody, but it has to be somebody. Got to have people you can talk to about this. And then finally... You need to talk openly about it with experts. Anxiety disorders, we'll talk about in a little bit, they're a disease of the body, much like cancer or diabetes. You you wouldn't try to treat cancer on your own. You you would talk to somebody who, who studied that, who understands that. You need to do the same. If you're struggling with prolonged anxiety or an anxiety disorder, you need to talk to a doctor, you need to talk to a counselor, a psychologist, somebody who can help you understand what's going on and can treat you. You need to talk to experts. It was an expert who saved my wife in the midst of her battle, just like it was an expert who saved me in the midst of mine. When things were at their absolute worst four years ago, Julie found that the normal things that she would do to control worry weren't working anymore. So eating well, getting to sleep at a good time, reading the Bible, praying, coming to church, worshiping, that was not helping to push down anxiety. Anxiety was just growing and growing. It got so bad that she could not sleep. She could not eat. Eventually, one day, she could physically not get off the couch. 
And that's when she said, man, something's wrong with me. I got to go talk to an expert. And so she got in with a, a Christian counselor here in town, a wonderful woman our church works with. And, and she went to this Christian counselor expecting to get maybe a new verse to memorize or, or a new relaxation technique or something like that. But five minutes into the conversation with this Christian counselor, she said, you are slipping into a pit you cannot climb out of. You need medication now. That wasn't an evaluation I could make. Wasn't an evaluation Julie could make. We're not trained in that. It's an evaluation, though, that this expert could make. She understood, here's what's happening physically, biologically in your body. Here's what you need next. We need to be willing to talk to experts and counselors in our lives. That is not a sign of weakness or immaturity. That's wisdom and that's strength. So you sit down with an expert and, and you talk about what you're feeling. And one of the things they can do for you is help you to get to what are the causes? Why am I feeling this way? That can be one of the most disorienting things about an anxiety disorder is sometimes you don't know why you're suffering it. Well, why can't I get this worry under control? You don't know. So you sit down with an expert and they can help you figure out, well, here's what's going on in you. And so what are the causes of anxiety. Well, there's a lot of them. And in any particular person who battles anxiety, there's probably multiple interrelated causes at work. So I'm going to give you some of the common causes. Again, this is nowhere near an exhaustive list, but just to get you started, here's some of the common causes that you'll find behind anxiety. One is genetics. So very commonly, anxiety disorders come in family trees. If, if you look at your parents, your grandparents, your relatives, and, and you see that they struggle with anxiety, the chances are much higher you will too. And guess what? That is no one's fault. You are not guilty for inheriting that anxiety. They are not guilty for passing it on to you. The, our genetics are broken. It's part of the reality of living in broken bodies in a broken world is that we're going to inherit broken DNA. And that broken DNA is going to bring propensities towards certain illnesses and certain struggles. So just like there's a genetic component behind my depression, for Julie, there's a genetic component behind her anxiety. No one's guilty for that. That's just how life works in a broken world. Second common cause, past trauma. This is especially true for someone who suffered trauma as a child. Severe physical, emotional, or sexual trauma that happens to children greatly increases the chance that as they grow up, they will struggle with things like anxiety disorders, depression, addiction, eating disorders, and even suicidal thoughts. That is much the same for adults who suffer trauma. And we we tend to think of like PTSD and soldiers coming back from the battlefront with that. That's a, a common occurrence. But actually, PTSD can be experienced by any adult who suffers from prolonged traumatic experiences. That can be violence. That can be a prolonged illness. Lots of potential causes for PTSD. And I kind of want to pause for a second and just make sure you all are listening here. I just want to say this really clearly. If you or someone you love suffered severe emotional, physical, or sexual trauma as a child or as an adult and has not yet talked to a counselor about that, please go talk to someone. You need to do that. Do not hide it. Do not suppress it. Why? Because that trauma in your life is having an effect on you even if you are not aware of it. That's how severe trauma works. 
You need to sit down with an expert who can help you to, to bring that to light and to talk through and process what happened to you. That's the, that's the first and most important step towards healing. They can help you so that you get to a point where that trauma no longer has as much power over you. Please talk to someone. Talk to a counselor. So trauma is a common cause of an anxiety disorder. Next common cause, present danger. We talked about that earlier. You're walking through the dark parking lot at night. You feel anxiety. That's good. The problem is, what if the present danger doesn't go away? What if it's more than five minutes as you walk to your car? Well, you see this particularly with spouses who live in an abusive marriage. So they're staying there in an abusive situation. You see it also among people who live in poverty. Because both of those situations threaten your life. Okay, but both of those situations last. And so when we see people who are living in abusive situations or living in poverty, you can pretty much assume you probably are going to have an anxiety disorder as part of that because your body's in threat mode. It's shooting you full of adrenaline. The problem is the threat's not going away, so you're living off that adrenaline. That will cause an anxiety disorder for anyone. Okay, so very common cause. Number four, fear of the future. This is what we generally think of when we use the term worry. You're worried that something might happen. You might lose your job. You might get cancer. That's never the good kind of anxiety because you don't need a shot of adrenaline when something only might happen. (laughs) That's a, a future possibility. You don't need to feel fear about that. But when we worry about something that could happen in the future, that can eventually lead us to an anxiety disorder. That's very, very common. Next possible cause, prolonged stress. This is one of the most common causes. Again, quoting the Anxiety and Phobia Workbook. Anxiety disorders are an outcome of cumulative stress acting over time. I talked about this in the depression sermon. When your body is living under stress for a long period of time, it will eventually break. There's no way around that. How you break is the question. So for me, for Tommy Nelson, who I talked about, we broke in the depression way. For others, they break in the anxiety way. And under all of that stress, they begin to experience an anxiety disorder. I have a friend who's a lawyer, and he actually had to go check himself into the emergency room one day because he was sure he was having a heart attack, but he wasn't. It was a panic attack that was brought on by living under the constant like deadlines that lawyers have to follow and can't be laid on. So prolonged stress can lead us to an anxiety. A number of years ago, in college ministry, we had a young college girl who began to struggle big time with anxiety. It grew into a full-blown anxiety disorder. She eventually had a complete mental breakdown and had to be checked into a psych hospital. We found out week later, weeks later what it was caused by was a completely unrelated medication that her doctor put her on for something completely other than anxiety. It had nothing to do with anxiety. Problem is our bodies are so complex and so unique that sometimes you, you affect one part of the system and it affects something else. And so talking to a doctor is crucial because you don't know what's going to affect what else in your body. So sometimes medical issues can lead to anxiety disorders. Again, this is nowhere near an exhaustive list, just getting you started. When Julie and I look back at her battle with anxiety, we can see many of these at work. As I mentioned, genetics is part of this. Many of her family members battle anxiety disorders, so that's part of it. A second part of it is prolonged stress. So about 10 years ago, Julie and I were going through a period of of three years of infertility, which created a lot of stress in our marriage and in our life. And 
And then she got pregnant. We had the twins. And when she gave birth to the twins, she actually almost died. When we did make it home, we dealt with colic with our daughter. If you don't know what colic is, it's just your child screams all the time without cause and without cure. But we had two of them. So Julie had to take care of both kids while one of them screamed all the time. And the effect on her was so profound that Julie still suffers from what's called phantom crying. So she's laying in bed at night sleeping and an air conditioner will switch on and her body's sure that it's one of the twins screaming even though they're eight years old now. And she'll wake up with a full-on adrenaline shot in her body. And so to this day, she still sleeps with earplugs so she can't hear the AC coming on or anything else. So prolonged stress was part of what was behind her anxiety. Third cause was about four years ago when it really broke out. Um, She went through a series of very painful medical issues. It actually started with a, a very common thing, a root canal. Turns out Julie has um, very complex teeth. And so one of, the, one of the roots went necrotic and it caused a great deal of pain. She had to have eight root canals on that one tooth and it caused an incredible amount of pain. She had migraines for months that would never go away. And those migraines eventually led to chest pain. She had really severe chest pain. And so we took her to a lot of specialists. They thought it might be something to do with their diet, with her diet. So they put her on all kinds of different diets and medications, even had us elevate the, the bed, everything they could think of. Nothing worked. And so it kind of led to the fourth cause, fear of the future. Julie began to fear that she would never feel good again, that she would never be free of pain, that she would never sleep. All of those things combined together led to her anxiety disorder. And one of the things that I think is really important that I tell her, she tells me similar things about my depression. It's important to remember that you add up all four of those things, it would break anyone. It's not a sign of her being weak or sinful or immature. You add up all four of those causes and anyone would suffer from an anxiety disorder. And so I want you to know if you're suffering from an anxiety disorder, it is not a sign that you are guilty or spiritually immature. It's just life in a broken world. You are not guilty just like my wife is not guilty. Okay, so once you get a sense of what's behind your anxiety disorder, how do you treat it? Let me give you a few ideas. Let's move on to the next step. How do you begin to treat this anxiety disorder? Well, you fight negative self-talk. And what do I mean by that? Well, self-talk is what you're doing right now. You're talking to yourself up here. We do it all the time, all day long. We're talking to ourselves. We're saying things to ourselves. And the words that we say to ourselves have power. The words that we say to ourselves can shape our mental state, either in a good direction or a bad direction. So if you think thoughts to yourself that are negative, that will fuel anxiety. And I'm talking about when you think to yourself, well, it's never going to get better. This is hopeless. This is all my fault. I am worthless. God doesn't love me. He's not listening to me. Negative statements to yourself like that have power. They begin to shape your mind and your thoughts in a negative direction. The same is true when you dwell on worst case scenarios. What I mean by that is that you wake up one morning and your stomach hurts. And so you do the worst possible thing you can do whenever you have some new pain in your body. What do you do? You go check it out on WebMD. And so you, you type it in, pain in stomach, and there's a whole list of possibilities. But what is always the bottom one on the list? Cancer. Okay, so you read this list, and it could just be indigestion. But you see, well, it could be stomach cancer, and you begin to dwell on that worst-case scenario. And now, well, I guess I need to do an internet search on stomach cancer. And you, you do that, and pictures come up that you can never unsee. And you begin to imagine what is life going to be like on chemo, because I'm sure I have cancer. And that 
dwelling on that worst case scenario begins to change your mental state. It shapes how you think in a negative direction and fuels anxiety. So you have to fight against that negative self-talk by filling your mind with positive things. So what positive things? Well, now it's finally time for Philippians 4, which I had you turn to at the beginning, the single most important passage in the Bible on the subject of anxiety. If you look at Philippians 4, starting in verse 6. Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. What Paul's telling you, it's actually summarized really well in this wonderful quote. You should write this down by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Beware of what you dwell on, for that you shall surely become. You have an incredible ability to shape your character and what you dwell on, what you focus on. It's all about what you choose to think about. Paul's point is, if you will fill your mind with these good things in verses 6 through 8, it will shape you in a good direction. It will help you in your battle with anxiety or depression or whatever you're suffering from. And so, in particular, what good things should you dwell on? It will shape you in a positive direction and lessen the power of anxiety in your life. Well, two things. First, truth. Paul says in verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure... Dwell on these things, focus on these things, fill your mind with these things. Well, where do you get these things from from God's word? I think what Paul is challenging us to do is to read and memorize scripture. And and so you're probably not going to memorize the whole Bible, although that would be great. What, What should you do? You should find some passage that really speaks truth to you, truth about God's character and his faithfulness and his love and his promises and who you are now in Christ. So for me, I mentioned a few weeks ago, that's Psalm 23. So I memorize that. I say that to myself when I'm battling whatever I'm dealing with. For Julie, it's Isaiah 40. So here's what she says to herself when anxiety really takes hold. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. So for Julie, she memorized that. Now she meditates on it. And, and it's not a, a magic wand that just makes the fearful thoughts go away. That's not how God's word works. Instead, it gives her strength. In the middle of her battle with anxiety, it gives her a solid foundation to stand on. It helps move her mind in a positive direction. Okay, so find your passage, memorize it, and meditate on it. When you begin to battle with worry, it will push back against that negative self-talk. So first, you fill your mind with truth. Second, you fill your mind with gratitude. There's a really important prepositional phrase in verse 6 that you may have missed. You are to lift up your prayer and supplication to God with thanksgiving. What that means is that when you're battling any kind of worry or fear and you turn to God in the midst of it, make sure you practice the discipline of giving thanks. So here's just a rule for you. This is really, really powerful. Gratitude gives birth to peace. 
Gratitude gives birth to peace. Because gratitude, when we say thank you to God, we are reminding ourselves that God has been good and faithful to us in the past. And as we remember that, it helps convince us that God will be faithful and good to us in the future. And that confidence instills peace in our souls. Gratitude gives birth to peace. The problem is, gratitude does not come naturally to human beings. It's not our natural state. We have to work at gratitude. That's why it's called a spiritual discipline. It takes discipline. You have to choose to do it even when you do not feel grateful. Gratitude is something you build by habit. You choose to give thanks regularly whether you feel like it or not. And over time it develops into a habit that begins to shape your mind and mental state in a positive direction. So because we struggle with with gratitude and need reminders, we need to build it into a habit, God gave us a gift. It's, It's actually really interesting. In the Old Testament, God gave the Israelites a tool to help them build the habit or discipline of gratitude. And it is called an Ebenezer. Really weird word. You may have sung it and fount of every blessing. We talk about how here I raise my Ebenezer. I remember singing that in Bible church as a kid and wondering what in the world am I raising? I don't know what that word is. Well, this is an Ebenezer. It is an ancient memorial stack of stones. So the Israelites in the Old Testament, whenever God did something big, something mighty, something loving, something faithful, in that place, they would make a pillar of stones. And typically they would do it next to roads or intersections so that you would pass that pillar of stones on a regular basis. Every day you're going to work, you pass the pillar of stones. And what does that do? It reminds you, hey, God did something for me here. I should thank God for doing this. And so actually Ebenezer refers now to to really anything tangible that reminds you to give thanks. So it could be a stack of stones. If you want to do that in your backyard, more power to you. They're awesome. If you want to put up a picture that reminds you of a time God was good to you, faithful to you, write a verse on the wall, keep a gratitude journal, get a tattoo of it, whatever helps you tangibly to remember God's goodness and faithfulness in your life. Raise your Ebenezer so that you can build up this habit of giving thanks that will push back against the negative self-talk and help you in your battle with anxiety. Next step. Take care of yourself. If you want to battle anxiety, you've got to take care of yourself. Let me ask you to think about this for a second. What is the greatest act of love a Christian can do according to Jesus? Die for someone else, right? Be a martyr. It's just one problem with being a martyr. You're now dead, which is really not an option for most of us. Like we have kids we have to care for. We have a spouse we have to care for. We have aging parents we have to care for. We have a job we have to do. We have an education we have to get. We can't be a martyr today. So what does that mean? It means we got to take care of ourselves so that we can continue to take care of the people God has given us responsibility in. Say you, you must take care of yourself. Actually, taking care of yourself is a spiritual imperative. It is necessary so you can fulfill the responsibilities God has given you. In our household, Julie and I call this the put your mask on first principle. It comes from being on an airplane. Well, masks fall from the ceiling. What do they tell you to do if you got a little kid with you? Well, your instinct is to put the kid's mask on first. Because, right, parents are supposed to sacrifice for our kids. They say, don't do that. Chances are you'll pass out in the middle of it and both of you will die. You put your own mask on first so that you are then enabled to care for your child. That is biblical. Here's a verse we we 
share many times and don't grasp what all it's saying. Philippians 2, 4, Paul says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. We focus on the second part of the verse, but what does the first part say? It assumes you are taking care of yourself. You are looking out for your own personal interests. Unless God calls you today to be a martyr, you have to keep looking out for your own personal interests. You've got to take care of yourself so that you can fulfill the responsibilities God has given you in this life. Very practically speaking, what does that mean? Well, three practical ideas. Number one, you've got to live within your limits. God has given us each emotional, relational, and physical limits. You need to discover your limits and live within them. But here's the hard part. My limits are different than your limits. We all have individual limits. So that means we cannot compare ourselves to other people to figure out whether we're doing a good job in life. We all are unique. We all have our own limits. You've got to find what your limits are and live within your limits, even if you're not then meeting the expectation or example of someone else. I'll give you an example from my own life. Many pastors like to go out to lunch on Sunday afternoon with people. I don't and I won't. Why? Because God has taught me about my limits in life. And one of them is after I preach, I got to be alone for a little while. And so I'm not going to go to lunch with any of you and I don't feel guilty about that. Because I'm not called to live up to anyone's expectations of what a pastor should do, nor am I called to live up to the example of any other pastor. I'm called to live within my limits so I can be the best husband and father and pastor I can be. Okay, so you need to give yourself the gift of the word no. You do not have to do what other people expect of you. You need to live within the limits God placed into you. Okay, so discover your limits and live within them. That's the first way you take care of yourself. Second, you take care of your body. We talked a couple weeks ago in the sermon on depression. We are a body and a soul inextricably linked. Your soul cannot follow Jesus well if you do not take care of your body. It's a spiritual imperative to get good sleep, eat well, get good exercise. My wife, Julie, is right now in the best physical shape of her entire life. And it has nothing to do with how she looks. It's about how she feels. Julie's come to understand that for her, regular, really, really hard exercise is part of how she keeps anxiety in check. And so you've got to take care of your body. Let me say, if you are struggling with an anxiety disorder or depression like I do, and you've not had a physical in the last few years, you should go talk to a doctor. Find out how your body's doing. Get checked out. Because that can often be a big part of what we struggle with in our minds. Okay, so take care of your body. Third, pursue things that refresh you. Find good things in life that that refresh your soul. As I said in sermon a couple weeks ago, for me, it's fast cars. That refreshes my soul. For Julie, it's our dog, Coco. She absolutely loves our little dog. And here's the funny part. I'm not a dog guy. In fact, uh, back in the fall when my kids begged for a dog, I told them, quote, we will never have a dog. Two months later, we had a dog. So now, the bad part of this is now my kids know never equals two months in my house. <laughs> so we got this dog because Julie really wanted to have this dog, and I was so wrong. <laughs> and this little dog has been so therapeutic to her, and actually, surprisingly to me too. There's nothing that melts anxiety like playing with a little dog. So find things that refresh your soul and enjoy them as gifts from God. Okay, you got to take care of yourself. All right, next step, final step. Consider medication. 
you may find that even though you are doing everything we've so far covered, it's still not enough. That's what Julie found. She was doing all the right things we've talked about, and it still wasn't enough. She needed more help. She needed medication. And it was really fascinating to sit down with a doctor and talk about this and and talk about what medication does. I'm going to quote what exactly her doctor said to her. He said, your body is in panic mode. Your body literally thinks that it is strapped to railroad tracks with an oncoming train. You can't tell it otherwise. Your body is living as if you're strapped to tracks right now. You need medicine just like a heart patient needs blood pressure meds. So that was very freeing for Julie to come to the conclusion, wow, I need medicine just like a cancer patient or diabetic would need medicine. There's no other way around this. And so Julie went on these anti-anxiety medications and it made an incredible difference rebalancing the chemicals in her body. Particularly, it began to bring the adrenaline and cortisol under control that she had been living off of so that she could be healthy again. So medicine made a big difference in her life just like it did mine. And and so I just want to be really clear. I, I talked about this a few weeks ago. Let's talk about it again. I hope that in preaching these sermons, in my example, in my wife's example, that we can finally put to death the stigma that is in the church in general about the use of psychotropic medications. If you take medication for depression or anxiety, that is not a sin, nor it is a measure of spiritual weakness. Depression and anxiety are diseases. You may need medicine just like a cancer patient does. There is no shame in that. There is no guilt in that. There is no weakness in that. So what do you need to do? You need to talk to your counselor and your doctor and figure out what's best for you. And then do what they tell you. Don't, don't try to live up to other people's expectations. Take whatever medicine they, they tell you to take and take it without guilt. Take it without shame. Medication can be a major part of finding health and healing and hope in the midst of anxiety. It's not for everyone, but it is for many of us. Okay, so consider medication. Let me conclude with all five steps on the board and share some good news with you. Julie is today remarkably better than she was four years ago. Her anxiety is not all gone, just like my depression is not all gone. These might be struggles we deal with until Jesus comes back. We don't know. We don't have promise of complete healing this side of heaven. What we do know is that as you depend upon God and practice these steps, it really can get better. And that's the measure of success. So back to Matthew chapter 6. What was Jesus saying when he says, do not worry? I think what Jesus was saying is, do not surrender to worry. Because you can't control whether or not you feel worried. There's not some switch up in your brain you can flip and make the worry go away. You can't control that. You shouldn't feel guilty about that. Jesus is saying that when worry sets in, don't surrender to it. Don't give up. Instead, keep following these steps. Keep fighting for hope and peace. That is what success looks like this side of heaven. If you will continue to practice these steps, God can do remarkable things in and through your life. And so I want to pray for those of us who struggle with anxiety. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we praise you and thank you that you are compassionate and merciful. We thank you that, as Tim said earlier this morning, you know absolutely everything about us. You see every thought, and so you know every weakness, and yet you still love us. You, you are not upset with us or disappointed with us because we are broken and weak. Instead, you love us in the midst of that. God, we thank you for that. 
And so, God, you know our struggles. And for many people here in this room, the struggle includes a battle with an anxiety disorder. And we pray for them. I pray, God, please remove any sense of guilt or shame they may have carried for that struggle. Help them to know that it's not their, it's not their fault, God. It's just part of living in a broken world. We all have struggles. This is just the particular struggle they have. I pray, God, that you would remove the guilt and that you would help them to be willing to talk with others about this battle that they're in. I pray that you would help them to be humble enough to talk with experts, to find a counselor, to find a doctor, someone who can help them through this. I pray, God, that you would help them to take care of themselves, their bodies, that you would help them to fight negative self-talk with the truths of your word and with the discipline of gratitude. I pray, God, that if a doctor does recommend medication, that they would be willing to do that and that they would do it without guilt or shame. I pray, God, that you would bring incredible healing in their lives. I pray that for all of us in the midst of our battles, that we would walk with you in humility and dependence, that you would help us to walk with you in such a way that when other people visit our church, that they would see just an amazing family that is compassionate and gracious to those who are broken and weak. I pray, God, that we would be loving towards one another, that we would be a support to one another, that we would lift up those who need help. We thank you, God, that you are patient with us. Help us to be patient with ourselves and patient with one another. You're so, so good to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you want to talk to an expert and you don't know who, please come talk to our church. We have a list of great counselors in town who can help you to deal with this. God bless you guys. I'll see you next week.